hakika wema nazo fadhili hakika wema nazo Welcome to Movable Dough. This is Steve Danielson. Each week, I get to sit down with a living composer and talk about their lives, their musical journeys, and of course, their music. Join me and take a peek inside the mind of a composer. For a complete archive of episodes, as well as access to the shorter segments called Movable Snippets, visit my website, sdcompose.com slash movabledough. Hey, this is Steve. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Movable Dough. My guest today is Nazo Zakak. Nazo is an Orthodox Christian composer who is commissioned by churches and monasteries across the U.S. He earned a bachelor's degree in jazz studies from San Diego State University and later an MFA in integrated composition, improvisation, and technology from the University of California, Irvine. In 2017, he released an album of New Orthodox hymns called Luxari. Nazo Zakak. Welcome to Movable Dough. Well, thank you very much. So before we talk about what you're doing now, I want to go back to where you started. Uh, so I understood you started out as a pianist, yeah? Yes. Uh, it's it's uh, definitely a, a, a story with lots of inner um, kind of uh, uh, interwoven layers. Um, yeah, I was a jazz pianist. I, I I was always an improvising pianist in my early my early days. I, I would uh, get lost, you know, playing Rachmaninoff, and I would start improvising instead. And I found that to be a lot more fun. And so eventually, my teacher said, you know, you should go into jazz. Um, and this is, you know, when I was in elementary school, um, wow. high school, and uh, and so I I met this fantastic teacher at San Diego State University. Uh, his name was uh, Rick Helzer, a um, harmonic genius, just a very underrated pianist and has, the, you know, I mean, uh, literally a genius when it comes to uh, complex harmonies, new harmonies. Um, and so I was, I was blown away by him and I ended up uh, uh, studying with him, got my bachelor's degree in jazz from SDSU. I didn't know what to do with a bachelor's degree in jazz. I didn't, so I, um, my, my, my parents, both of whom were engineers, and um, I always felt they had a mild sense of disappointment that their, their son, you know, turned out to be a, a musician. <laughs> but they were very supportive. Um, and they, they actually encouraged me to go uh, pursue a master's. And out of defiance, I, I applied only to one school uh, uh, UC Irvine, and I applied to their um, Integrated Composition, Improvisation, and Technology uh, uh, program, uh, ICIT program, which is fantastic, by the way, like, fantastic. So I, I applied, and I ended up getting um, a full scholarship and a TA ship, and I, I it was basically, I was looking for a reason to say no, because I, I didn't really <laughs> want to do more schooling, but I, I couldn't. So I uh, ended up going there and I, I studied with, um, uh, again, fantastic teachers, uh, Kay Akagi, um, amazing jazz pianist, um, Michael Dessen, uh, Ko Imazaki, Chris Dobrian, uh, uh, Cecilia Sun, lots of, lots, these were people that were basically my heroes mm -hmm. um, in the field of avant-garde and jazz, um, experimental music. So, yeah, um, during... During my school days, I ended up touring a lot, playing with a lot of uh, fantastic musicians. We toured uh, Mexico, New York. I, 
I, I had a blast. So yeah, yeah, j- jazz was definitely uh, a part of my past. It still is influential, although I don't, I don't do much jazz anymore these days. So when you were growing up, experimenting with jazz piano and things like that, what did you do when you weren't doing piano? When, what did you do for fun? As a kid, you mean? Yeah, yeah, back oh, when you were a kid. You know, it, it, it's funny. Um, most of the time I practiced piano. I mean, I had, <laughs> I had little stints where I wanted to be a football player. And uh, again, my dad, who actually was an athlete during his college days, just looked at me and said, no, you're, you're, like, you're a scrawny <laughs> little kid. You're not going to do this. No. Um, at one point, I wanted to, um, I got into rocketry. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I feel like I could have done something with that as the um as the the years kind of pile on and the the burn of the artist trying to make a living is is weighing on me now as as that's kind of um taking its toll i, I a part of me regrets not going into a more uh, i guess stable uh field <laughs> but but um I, you know, most of the time I practiced piano, even when I wanted to learn another instrument, you know, I would pick up trumpet or violin or, or electric bass. And again, my dad would just come in with that very kind of solid, like, stop, you're, you're sounding terrible. You know, <laughs> you, need to, you need to stick to piano. You're good at piano. And, um, you know, he was right. Uh, he, he was right. It, it was, I, I like to flirt with a lot of different things, but I, I mostly practiced piano. You know, we have we have all the, the home videos to prove it. Every home videos of my younger sisters playing around, being kids, and I'm at the piano going, "You want to hear my composition?" So it, it got pretty annoying, I imagine. <laughs> well, that's pretty cool. So, can you tell us about the car accident that sort of changed the trajectory of your music career? Yes. So it it's kind. You know, I'm I'm a religious person, so I don't. I don't think things um, happen for no reason, right? And I think a lot of times the payoff is happens way longer. You start, you look back and you see what was really in play. Um, it's kind of interesting. So, you know, we, we were in this car accident after a, a camping trip up in, up in Yosemite and my left ear got hit by this airbag in the, in the minivan. They have airbags that go in from the top and I, I didn't know this. And um I, I developed this, it, so it was, it was incredibly painful. There was this constant ringing, but there was also this, this weird sensation where every time a, uh, a pitch would be shifted, at first it was hypersensitive, like it, in someone's voice, just their inflection, right? Like a tiny thing like, like this, when their voice would slightly go up and slightly back down, it would actually hurt. Mm. Um, it was just, it was odd. Um, I still have some pain to this day uh, in, in that year. Um, but, uh, you know, that after a couple of weeks, it kind of wore off. But then when I would play the piano, like the, a simple shift of an octave would just, it, it, I, I couldn't play. I would, I would stop and just be in pain and be frozen. Um, and so I got, this was right when I got called to do a very, important gig with a musician that I, you know, love and respect very much. I, you know, nothing bad happened. I just, I just played pretty horribly because I was in pain the whole time. And we're talking about experimental jazz with trumpets and saxophones and drums and all these, all these different things. And I just was paralyzed most of the time. So I, I felt pretty bad, you know, like I let everyone down. Um, and, uh, 
I ended up actually just kind of saying, you know, what have I accomplished what I wanted to with jazz? What was it that I sought out to do? And I looked at the musicians I played with, the, the tours that I was able to go to and said, you know, I, I think I've done it. <laughs> I, I, there's something else I'm looking for. And um, it wasn't, it just wasn't in jazz anymore. Yeah, so then you, you, you sort of found your way into hymnody, into composing hymns, right? Yes. What is, it, what is it about these hymns that compelled you so much to make it your life's work? So, so two things. Uh, first, I'm going to jump back to uh, my time at UC Irvine. Um, you know, I, I, I went in there kind of being the experimental pianist performer type of person. Right? Sure. And that's, that's what they, I don't want to make it sound bad. That's what they, they wanted me to be. No, they, they got, gave me that right. <laughs> on that identity. But I guess, I think in the last, uh, the, the last uh, like half of my time there, something shifted. I, I got really into the um, experimental music of, uh, uh, of the you know, 60s American and um, British musicians. Harold Budd, John Cage, of course, um, you know, Brian Eno, the Portsmouth Sinfonia, Gavin Bryars, uh, Michael Nyman, and, and uh, some, of, some of their works were incredibly short and incredibly beautiful. And you know, during this time, I was playing avant-garde and experimental music where you, you know, I was practicing playing the piano with my fist. Now, I don't know if you've seen any pianists do mm -hmm. that. There's the, the great jazz pianist, Don Pullen. He played with Mingus, um, who, who kind of had this technique where he would, be, he would be rubbing his fist across the keyboard and get this kind of wailing saxophone sound. Mm -hmm. you know, so I was, I was really out there. I did all kinds of stuff. Uh, all, you know, I played in some doom metal bands, hip hop bands, everything. And, and quite a few of them were experimental. And so... Um, you know, at, at this time, I was working on developing a technique um, where I would actually be using my knuckles to be, you know, you know, rolling them on the piano, getting this wailing sound, but I was practicing playing them within a key. So I'd be practicing doing that in B major and then C major, which was a huge pain because there are no black keys that you could use to kind of pivot <laughs> off of there. And I was working on that. My knuckles would be, you know, just bleeding, you know, every oh. couple of days. Um, and then all of a sudden, I said, you know, my favorite moments in, these, in this music is when everything gets simple. We have all of this noise and cacophony and huge amount of tension. And what I loved was when that tension was released and we'd have this just very simple, beautiful moment. And then things would go crazy again, right? Yeah. Um, and so I said, you know, why, why am I doing this? I just want that simple, beautiful moment. So I, um, I think I scared all my professors because I, I just one day I bought uh, uh, that, that great book, uh, Study of Counterpoint by J.J. Fu, and just started going through it. And I had, my, I, I had three or four uh, notebooks of manuscript paper that I went through on just counterpoint exercises. And, um, you know, exercises never bothered me. I always loved playing scales as a uh well not as a kid i hated them but in, in my in my jazz days undergrad and grad school i loved playing scales i would practice six to eight hours a day um not just on scales but you know practicing and scales were always part of my warm-up and part of my cool down so i loved exercises 
Um, so counterpoint exercises were just very stimulating for me. And, and I had no idea why this was what intrigued me at the moment. Um, but, you know, like I said, my professors were starting to get a little bit worried. Um, and I just found myself gravitating towards trying to write the most perfect type of uh, simple two-part harmony, three-part harmony. And I wasn't even thinking for voices. I was actually thinking for piano, just something simple and beautiful. Mm -hmm. Later on, I came to discover the works of Arvo Pear and Sir John Tavener, uh, very notable uh, Orthodox composers, um, not uh, so much of liturgical works, but of concert works. And they they used some similar techniques too, very simple things that they got yeah. a lot of mileage out of. So that, that's my very long-winded first part of the answer. <laughs> um, the second part is I was always looking for you know, I, I guess meaning in music. And again, I have old compositions from my um, high school days where I was trying to, you know, I, I'm, I'm trying to discover how can I make this G meaningful right now? And um, this is a question that is, uh, uh, well, it, it's a question that has been answered by several composers in our Western tradition. Uh, most notably, I think uh, Stravinsky was the one that said, you know, the meaning is the score itself, right? Not so much the interpretation. There's no real visual behind it. It's, it's what the composer wants. That's the meaning of the music. Um, and I'm simplifying pretty greatly, actually. But um, I was never satisfied with that. I, I, I've always been uh, looking for a mystical answer to things. Um, and so... So what happened is during this time, I got disenchanted with music in general. I couldn't play jazz. I had hand injuries. I had a, an ear injury. And I ended up uh, working for a, uh, a company called Musica Rusica. They, they publish orthodox scores by uh, uh, Russian composers. Mm. And the, the owner happened to be the uh, choir director at my church at the time. I, you know, I didn't know this. I, I actually thought very poorly of church music at the time, made some very um, brash and arrogant comments to my, <laughs> to my friends about church music at the time. And they remembered because they, you know, they saw what I ended up doing. And <laughs> out. So, um, but he, uh, I started working for him and I got to see some of these scores and I had no idea that Orthodox music could sound like this. Um, I grew up in a, in a Greek Orthodox church, which is uh, uh, the tradition there is strictly Byzantine chant, which is, you know, you have a couple of chanters and it's one melody that's sung. And, and most of the time you have an, another singer holding an isone, which is like the drone note, right? Gives the flavor of the melody. That's the mode, you know? Um, and I got, I got used to that very Greek um, you know, very Arabic traditions too. Arabic uh, uses Byzantine chant. So every church I went to, that, that's what I heard. We didn't have a choral tradition. We had chant. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, I'm listening to Rachmaninoff's All Night Vigil, and I'm looking at the score. I, I used to, I was allowed to take um, scores that misprinted. I was allowed to take them home. So I was always like eagerly awaiting when the printer would malfunction and I'd be able to catch <laughs> up that score and, and study it. Um, so I you know, there were several composers and works within the Russian Orthodox uh, choral tradition that I found um, inspiring, but most notably it was Rachmaninoff's All Night Vigil. Mm -hmm. And I actually copied that score by hand, uh, the very old school way. I don't know if you've, have you ever done that technique? I have. Yeah. 
there's, you know, I think you either get it or you don't. I've assigned this to a few of my students in the past and they just, some didn't get it. But for those that did, um, you come away with something very deep, I think. Yeah. So I, I, I copied his score um, and this, uh, the person who owned Musica Rusica, his name is uh, Vladimir Morrison, just a, a titan in the field of Orthodox music. He uh, brought this melody uh, of for a great doxology to me. And um, he said, you know, we have a choir that's uh, gonna be coming to New York soon. Would you mind harmonizing this? You know, you have a musical background. I see you studying the scores. Would you wanna give it a shot? So, you know, I spent weeks um, working hard on this uh, to come up with like, you know, the most basic type of score. It's, you know, sticking around the kind of the uh, a primary chords, right? A few variations. Of, and um, uh, and funny enough, that, that it was actually, a, I think, a pretty terrible arrangement. And I can <laughs> tell you why later. But that piece ended up getting recorded. Um, they paid me for it. And they said I'd be getting royalties if you know, on the CD. And as a jazz musician, these were like things that I never heard of. <laughs> you know, I, I was I was playing gigs just to get a dinner, you know. Um, so so a part of it was like, okay, maybe I should be writing church hymns because they actually are paying. But but the thing is, um, I started seeing how the music is meant to serve the words. And to me, that gave me the meaning that I was looking for. I'm no longer trying to make abstract music, this concrete thing and say, you know, you have to understand what this means. You know, this is a holy melody. Now it's about serving the word. Um, and, and, you know, I believe in the, the poetry of the Orthodox church. It's so, so beautiful and so powerful when translated right. Um, and so I mean, that's been another struggle of mine too, finding good translations, but yeah. um, that, you know, that's kind of what sealed the deal for me. They're, the Orthodox hymns are typically fairly short. So that works for my kind of fascination with short, beautiful pieces. Um, and and the, the text of the Orthodox liturgics gave me the meaning that I was looking for. Nice. So I noticed on your website that most of your hymn scores are available for free download. So why did you decide to make them available for free? Well, I... I mean, I see myself as somewhat doing missionary work. Um, I, I want my music to be accessible for people. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, this is to serve the church, it's to serve congregations. Um, I'm not writing concert music. I rarely do. I've gotten a few commissions like that. And it's been fun because you get to finally stretch out and you don't have to keep toning things down, right? Mm -hmm. um, but th th this is music that's meant to be simple. It's meant for the people. Uh, to be able to sing along to if they want. Um, but, you know, congregational singing is kind of a, a tradition in at least American Orthodox churches. Yeah. And, uh, and mainly it's, it, you know, I want, I, when I was a kid, I remember hearing Orthodox hymns that would just take forever to sing and they were so boring and I'd start falling asleep or start acting out in church. <laughs> and I know this is a weird thing to kind of base it off of, but I listened to it as as a kid, I'm like, would nine-year-old Nazo like be able to listen to this? Would he find any parts of this hymn cool? You know, um, and uh, sure enough, you know, I get lots of videos from parents uh, who are, uh, you know, recording their kids singing my hymns. Oh, that's um, awesome. So that's it's almost it sounds like the best compliment you can get. <laughs> you know, um, 
but yeah, I wanted to be free because I, I, you know, I have a Patreon set up um, where thankfully I, you know, I, I can get a little monthly income to, to support this, but you know, I, I always want the music to be free. I've actually pulled my music from publishing companies um, because I want it to be free so mm. that anyone can, anyone can sing it without any worries. That's awesome. You know, one of the things I appreciated on your website um, was the humor in your bio. Oh, God. <laughs> well, it stood out as a stark contrast to the very serious tone of the rest of your site and your music. Uh, do you ever have the opportunity to incorporate this humor side of your personality and your music? I'm glad you say the word humor. I'm, I'm going <laughs> to go, go say this to my wife right now. I, I, I think she heard me because I just heard a big sigh coming from the kitchen. <laughs> well, honestly, I, I, uh, I just get tired of reading professional biographies. Because after you, you know, you read the list, they studied here, they played with these perform, you know, these musicians, they had these performances. After a while, my eyes just kind of glaze over and you start saying, okay, they know things, you know. (laughs) And I just, one night I got fed up with like all the drafts of the bio that I was writing. And I just, I just got fed up and just wrote this and posted it, not on a whim, didn't care. And I was actually quite angry at the end of it because I don't like writing biographies. Um, But yes, I... I do try to bring that sense of humor in primarily in rehearsals when I conduct my church uh-huh. choir. And, but see, there's, there's an importance to that. Um, you know, my, my jazz, my jazz training uh, taught me how to be a band leader more than anything else. I'm not a choir director, uh, but I've, I've had to be one. I've been forced into the position actually. Um, and what I learned is that church choirs are very frail emotionally. You, you, people are, I mean, church itself is looking for answers and their problems are, are in the center of it, right? Mm-hmm. And they have this kind of idea that, you know, everyone's going to be there to support each other. The priest is there to help them. Um, and they, there's a chance for them to be very vulnerable. Um, and so as a choir director, just pointing out that the altos sang the wrong note was enough to send some of them into this into this shadow, you know, this terrible mood. <laughs> and so I, I just had to be in great spirits, had to joke around. Sometimes you have to take the blame. You have to say, you know, that was my bad. I, I gave us a, a bad start there. Let's do that again. Because it's not, I know this is a weird thing to say, but it's not about the music at that point. People are more important than that. You know, if the music is meant to serve the words, then how much more should I be striving to help these people sing confidently, sing in their best, you know, state possible? Yeah. So, yeah, you know, I, tr- I try to bring a sense of humor into it and, and hopefully not too much uh, to the actual liturgy itself, because that is a right. serious right. moment. But even then, there's there's a sense of joy throughout it. Yeah. All right. Well, I've got one more question for you before we take a quick break. Uh, And this actually comes from one of my middle school students. I teach middle school and I ask them what they would ask a composer if they could sit down with them. So my student Elise asks this. She says, since becoming a composer, do you listen to other composers music differently? Yes. Oh, big time. Um, Well, you know, my 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 training um, through all of my school days has, has given me quite a good ear. Um, So, you know, you would be transcribing music just from the audio itself. Right. 
but then after a while you don't even need to write it down you can just hear what's going on so yes oh absolutely since i started identifying as a composer it you, i almost stopped sitting down and enjoying music and i was <laughs> analyzing it the whole time going what's going on there and i would say i know this isn't what elise is asking but more so as a parent uh, as a recent parent having no time <laughs> to actually compose uh, 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 anything that i listen to whether it's the disney soundtracks that my four-year-old wants to hear um, um, or, you know, anything that's going on in the background, uh, I just, I'm instantly analyzing it going, okay, what's the snare doing there? What's the hi-hat doing? What's, you know, and just kind of creating a little notation in my head. So yeah, absolutely. Awesome. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll listen to some of Nazo's compositions. Welcome back. I'm talking today with Nazo Zakak. We're going to start today with Gladsome Light. So this is a Vesper hymn. Uh, and did you write the text on this one? No, this is a, a Gladsome Light is actually an ancient hymn okay. uh, written by a Christian martyr. Yes. Gotcha. So is this, a, a, is this one of the translations that you were talking about earlier? Uh, this is a pretty standard translation within the um, Antiochian archdiocese. Mm -hmm. Okay. Can you yeah. explain? Can you explain to our listeners uh, what this what this is about? Yeah, so this is sung during the Vespers service, um, which is the evening service for the Orthodox Church. We uh, it's typically sung on uh, Saturday, Saturday evenings, and it's um, essentially uh, the text is stating that we are you know we are remembering God and His works as the evening is setting, and it's drawing all of these parallels uh, uh, between God and light itself. And again. Um, much of the text of the Orthodox Church is quite poetic. Mm -hmm. um, and we, we just tend to miss it because we, we tend to have some pretty bad translations. But, you know, this is a very, very powerful hymn that we sing on a weekly basis, and it's comparing God to light. You know, that's, that's not just a normal kind of, you know, typical, we praise the kind of hymn, you know. Um, and, and there is this whole other backstory uh, to this uh, to the musical setting on this that uh, I, I can get into if you'd like. It's kind of unrelated, but uh, may make for a fascinating story. We've, like. we've got some time. Well, okay, so I might, I, I might be ending my career with this. But, uh, <laughs> so th th I wrote this piece pretty early on in my, in my composing days, in my orthodox composition days. And I was having discussion with uh, two very dear friends of mine. The piece is actually dedicated to them. And we were talking about what makes a piece of music sound orthodox. And I was saying, well, you just, you take the chant, you know, every orthodox tradition, everywhere from Bulgaria to Romania to Greek, Russia, everywhere, they, they have their chants and you just arrange the chant and it can sound orthodox. Like, it's not a problem. And um, they dared me to come up with a new chant. Oh, that's easy, you know, and I'm, I'm pretty cocky at this point, right? Because I haven't done any of this yet. Oh, that's easy. And then one, one of them goes, well, wait a minute, let's take this a step further. Can you take a Disney song and write an Orthodox hymn based off of that? And of course, in my arrogance, I go, yeah, easy. Um, you know, and so they, they give me the song, uh, Love is an Open Door from Frozen. <laughs> And it's and and immediately as soon as they say that I start humming da 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 I go yeah easy I got it right 
Um, and that's kind of the motive that you'll you'll hear throughout this. Um, and it's kind of funny because when this piece premiered, a very respected uh, chanter came up to me and said, I can tell you've been listening to Rachmaninoff. Like, good job, good work. And I kind of you know, sheepishly grin and go, yeah, it was frozen. <laughs> um, but you know, my, my point was to prove that the text is what matters the most, mm-hmm. right? The, the, I wasn't being disrespectful by you know, putting any Disney, Disney type of melody or you know, anything like that uh, into this hymn. Uh, I mean, first off, Disney writes amazing music. They get the best musicians to do their stuff. So you know, let's not kid around there. But um, you know, my, my aim was to show that if you're respectful of the text, you could take anything and uh, make it sound orthodox. So no disrespect meant when you, when you, uh, you know, listen to this. All right. Well, we're going to listen to Glad Some Light. And I want to mention that all the recordings that we're going to hear today are from Nazo CD, Luxari. All right, we're going to go next to your Canon of St. Andrew. So this hymn was written for Lent. And when you write a hymn for Lent, do you have to approach the composition differently? Do you have uh, certain constraints that you need to follow uh, as part of the liturgical cycle? Well, with with this piece especially, yes. Um, this canon is just the very first ode of, uh, uh, well, I want to say typically a canon is 13 odes. And if I, if I remember correctly, you know, forgive me, ever since I've, I've had kids, I've been forgetting absolutely everything. I want to say the canon of St. Andrew has significantly more than 13 odes, if I, if I remember correctly. Um, um, the biggest thing about this piece is, is 
having the mood be right. If you, if you listen to the words for the canon of St. Andrew, it's very penitential, um, very, very humbling and very kind of uh, uh, acknowledging your own sins, kind of taking responsibility for your own mistakes, carrying your own cross. Um, at, you know, when we recorded this, actually the, uh, the, the choir, the, the Adelphos Ensemble that recorded this, um, at the end of this piece, they were worn out and you'll hear the music isn't difficult, but they were just sitting down. They were, you know, there was a gloom about all of them. Um, I had to go in there and have a few, you know, encouraging words and attempt to lift their spirits because th this is some pretty heavy stuff. Um, and what I wanted to do is I wanted to see, so, so a lot of my music is written to be very short, very beautiful, very memorable. And, and um, th that's my goal. And, and I wanted to, to test myself with this hymn and say, look, can can I actually kind of withstand the test of Lent? Can I apply, you know, these same techniques and can I basically apply my music to this fire of Lent and can it stand? Can it still sound penitential and not just, you know, like a sweet hymn that you would sing? All right. Well, let's take a listen here to the Canon of St. Andrew. Oh, yeah. 
All right, our next piece today is I Have Thee. So this hymn was written for a, I'm not sure if I'm saying this correctly, Paraclesis? Oh yeah, Paraclesis. Paraclesis. I'm not as familiar with these services. Paraclesis yeah. service, uh, which is supplication specifically for the living. So what was the occasion surrounding your writing this piece? Well, so this is early on in my um, Orthodox composing days. I, I had written, you know, let the, the great doxology that I mentioned before, and I I didn't really have any um, any sense of direction. Uh, in a sense, it, it was actually quite beautiful because I could write whatever I wanted. Um, now, the more I know, the more limited I guess I feel by in an odd way. I know that's not typically how the saying goes, but for me, it's you know it's true. Um, but back then, I was going through a pretty dark phase in my life um, where you know dealing with kind of in my mid-20s depression, um, some, uh, uh, you know, some other darker stuff. We don't need to go there. And a friend of mine just invited me to a paraclysis service. And I, I went and it was, um, this paraclysis service was dedicated to the mother of God. And throughout all of it, it's almost as if they just laid all the, they laid all their woes just bare. It was mm. dark, you know, everything was, I mean, not, not just penitential, but uh, confessional, you know, it was saying like, I, you know, I carry this darkness with me. I can't see a way out, you know, mother of God, pray for us, mother of God, entreat your son to, to help us. And at that moment, again, I just kind of stood in church frozen I couldn't believe that we had services that acknowledged this type of darkness. Um, and I, by the end of the service, I was in tears. I went up to the priest and asked him, can I get a copy of this paraclysis book? You know, um, I, I, I want to read through this. And, um, and of course he let me and I, uh, I went home and I poured through it. I still have that copy. It just has markings all over it. And um, this one hymn to me was the point in the paraclysis service that was the resolution, I still get chills when I think about it, but the uplifting, you know, finally, we have a foundation, you know, the text is, I have thee, basically, we're saying to the mother of God, I have thee as a foundation, mm. right, and it was just such a relief, 
for all of this darkness that I had. And so, you know, for me, writing Orthodox music cements my belief too. It's not just about, um, uh, you know, writing music and sending it out there and hoping it gets done. Each piece has, has quite a deep meaning for me. And I, and I go into them at various levels, but some are quite personal to me. And this one really got me out of a, a, a dark past. Mm. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. We are going to listen now to I Have Thee. All right. Well, our last piece today is The Angel Cried. So I understand this was a commission uh, that you had uh, in which you based the piece on a Romanian chant. Uh, can you tell us about the commissioning process for this piece and how you dealt with the chant? Yes. It, it, the, the process was quite simple. My, my commissions are actually quite simple. I, I just say, what do you want? And then I, <laughs> I, I go do it. I bend over backwards to make it happen. Um, and so uh, th for this piece, um, uh, this uh, this lady wanted um, uh, her favorite melody was this uh, hymn of the angel Christ in Romanian, and uh, uh, she sent that to me via YouTube, which I think you you know you can uh, you, you will hear very soon, mm -hmm. um, just a snippet of it, and I ended up transcribing it, and so so this is how I developed my my process of working with chants typically when you get a great Orthodox melody, everyone wants to sing it. There are these classic Orthodox hymns and everyone wants to sing it. So we translate it to all the languages. Now, most of these languages, most of these, you know, are Greek or, or Arabic or, you know, but uh, they're not written in English initially. 
So what happens is we get these chants and people will just force English words into it. And you get this terrible, uh, just it's a terrible hymn with a beautiful melody. <laughs> you know, you, you're suddenly you find yourself singing a huge accent on the word the or the word and will be receiving like a seven note run um, or the climax of the piece will be on, you know, just these words that like aren't powerful. Right. Or it will be, uh, you know, the reverse of uh, tone painting, you know, where the melody will go up and the words are, you know, you trampled down, death, you know, and it, it's just, you know, things that make kind of no sense. And so I, I was always a proponent, proponent of rewriting the chant. And so what I did is I, I wrote this entire chant down. I analyzed how it's built. You know, I broke it up into little cells. Um, and uh, I took the text and I essentially recomposed the chant. And in that regard, I'm very, I'm very proud of how this hymn turned out um, because it flows in the, in the English language. You know, I, I'll be the first person to say, you know, my music isn't, I mean, it's, it's nice, but it's not, it's not like incredibly beautiful. It's simple music, right? What I will say is that it's written well and it's written uh, with English in mind. Um, and for Orthodox music, that's something that we are lacking very much. All right. Well, we're going to first listen to the Romanian chant, uh, if I say this correctly, Ingorul Astrigat, uh, followed, <laughs> followed by the angel cried. <laughs>
All right. Well, Nazo, what are you working on now that you can tell us about? Well, my uh, my two most recent commissions include uh, an acathist uh, to the Archangel Michael uh, that uh, I'm actually I think I'm a year late for that, but I'm finally uh, typesetting it now. I, I very much dislike the typesetting process, <laughs> but, um, but I'm getting that all notated and ready. Um, and that's, uh, again, 13 odes for that one, but it's simple. Um, and then um, I'm also, I've been commissioned by the uh, Chinese language division of uh, ancient faith ministries to write a uh, divine liturgy in Chinese. Hmm. And that, uh, that's been, uh, we actually uh, just uh, uh, tracked a few pieces for that. Um, it's unlike anything I've ever worked, worked on. It's, it's kind of amazing to hear, um, you know, in, a, in, a, in, in, in Mandarin, you know, this liturgical setting that you're very familiar with. Sure. Um, and so that's been a lot of fun. That's been a lot of, uh, well, it's, it's difficult to manage writing something that sounds well you know orthodox based in chant right but also uh something that is identifiable to the um uh, chinese thinker as right. well it's a challenge that i feel has come at the right time because i've been I, I was looking for something that just would you know blow my mind with its with its difficulty lately and yeah it, it delivered you know <laughs> So where could my listeners learn more about you and, uh, and your music? What's your website? Um, my website is nazozakak.com, uh, just my name. And um, I have a Patreon, just patreon.com slash nazo. That's N-A-Z-O. I, I don't really do social media. I, I don't do well on social media as a person, so I don't do any of it. So just that, my website and my, my Patreon. Sounds good. Well, hey, listeners out there. Make sure that you tune in next week for our special 50th episode. Uh, make sure that you have subscribed to Movable Dough on your favorite podcast provider so you'll receive notification for new episodes as soon as they launch. Check us out on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, or anywhere else you can find podcasts. Well, Nazo Zakak, thank you so much for joining me today on Movable Dough. Oh, thank you very much. My guest today was composer Nazo Zakak. If you have a recommendation for a future guest or an idea for the show, please email me at movabledoe at gmail.com. This is Steve Danielson. Keep the music moving.